Hello, guys and girls. How's it going? My name is Gray, and this is another episode of the Gray App Podcast. This is a show where I bring out different types of Type A personalities from different types of industries across the world, and try to find their insights, philosophies, stories of both failure and success, routines, as well as secrets, if there's any. So, because you guys enjoyed the previous podcast with Katlego, who is the CEO of the fintech company based in South Africa, Cape Town, Nyoko, you would definitely love this one as well. Uh, we have another unicorn all the way from Chicago by the name of Rihanna Lynn. Some of you know Rihanna and some of you definitely do not know her. So I'm just going to give you a tidbit. Rihanna Lynn is a young leader in innovation, technology and good food. As a serial entrepreneur, Rihanna has developed high growth, nationally recognized technology and food businesses. She has served as a recent entrepreneur in residence for Google Code 2040. After first-hand experience working with struggling food innovators, she has also she was inspired to develop supply chain software to create Foodtrace, which is her company in which she's the CEO of. Her products have significantly impacted thousands of food businesses across the U.S. and beyond. Rihanna's development work was pivotal for CNBC's small business hit show, The Profit. Her accomplishments have been featured in USA Today, Wired, Entrepreneur Magazine, Cranes, 20 in the 20s, among others. She is a co-founder and board member of Women Tech Founders. She graduated with a BS in Biology and Chemistry from the U University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill before pursuing a master's at Northwestern University. And another thing worth mentioning, she has also worked at the White House during the Obama administration, and she taught herself how to code as well while she was um, at the University of, of North Carolina. And we talk about that and how she went about it and why she did it. And we definitely talked about diversity because she has worked in, and she still work in that area um, on different levels. She has worked at Google, like I said, doing that. And she gave me a few insights in this subject. And you know, this is a regular subject here. We have talked about this with Robin Ferrer on one of the podcasts previously. You might want to check it out. She's also a tech founder based in Cape Town, South Africa. And we talk about her company, Food Trace, and how she started and how it helps people in the food business and a lot more than that. So we did this podcast via Skype and the audio quality obviously cannot be the same as a one-to-one -one recording as most of my podcast. And I hope you understand that. But there's nothing taking off from the content and you would definitely understand exactly what we were trying to talk about. And with that, I'm out of here. And if you haven't subscribed to the Great F Podcast yet, you might as well do that now. All right. Stay awesome. Yeah, so my name is Rihanna Lin. I am the uh, CEO and founder of Food Trace. I've also um, am the founder uh, and partner of Purple Carrot Labs and Journey Foods. Um, and I've served as a Google Entrepreneur in Residence working to promote entrepreneurship and tech in communities around the U United States and beyond. Right. Um, are those the only areas you have worked? Yes. Or you also worked for the White House? Yes. So I um, have worked at the White House. I have, was kept on different youth entrepreneurship boards uh, when I, during my time at the White House under the Obama administration. Uh, I worked uh, specifically on three, three major areas, and that's... Um, on women and girls initiatives, uh, mostly around business and science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, business, and as well as African-American initiatives uh, in business and entrepreneurship. Great. So I think one of the things, obviously, that you're known for is uh, technology. Before we get into food trace, but could you just explain how you got into tech? Definitely. I, you know, have always been um, from before college, before um, some of my primary years in education, I was always interested in understanding how 
I could build um, some of the really awesome websites that I uh, frequented as a teenager. Sports networks or uh, e-commerce websites, I've always been quite intrigued by learning more in the space. Um, so, uh, but I've always been into science. And so I studied biology and chemistry in undergrad, but I knew that uh, I had a very strong interest in web development. I'm back in technology for websites. Uh, at the time that I entered college, um, there weren't a lot of uh, computer science uh, programs, especially ones that recruited minorities and women. And so I took it over myself um, very, especially after I think right when I got to campus or right before I even stepped, stepped foot on campus, uh, I went to University of North Carolina, the great university, um, also uh, in a program with Duke University. These are some of the top universities in the country, um, well known for sports. So I was a track and field athlete uh, recruited to go to UNC, uh, the same school that Michael Jordan graduated from in the 80s for basketball. So that's how it's widely known. But the school is very well known for science um, and global health as well. Um, and, and, and what I'll explain later is where the school is now becoming known for entrepreneurship programs. But um, yes, early in 2004, before I even stepped on campus, there really weren't any uh, recruitment efforts, as I said, for computer science, for uh, web technology um, tracks for women um, or young minorities. And so I uh, first registered for Facebook before I even moved my, into my dorm on campus. Uh, and um, it, Facebook had only been around for a few months at that time and had really been available to some of the Ivy League schools and a couple of the other top universities in, in the country. So I believe my school was, you know, maybe in top t first 12 universities that were allowed on, uh, on Facebook. I, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, they slowly just trickled out more universities every, every month. Uh, and it really wasn't until, I think, two years after Facebook began that they opened it up to high schoolers and then to everyone. And so I I really was quite interested in how websites like Facebook work, how these um, centralized database kind of content marketing sites, uh, what WordPress-like sites uh, were managed. Um, and how one could create their own. Uh, so I reached out to some developers and, and worked on trying to create websites um, that were similar. And I'd also been very interested in e-commerce uh, just because I wanted to help some of my friends on campus sell you know, T-shirts and, and things of the sort. And I found that there were a lot of um, small individual developers that were making good money doing these things. And so while I was studying uh, pre-med and in, in undergrad, I just sat with you know young developers and learned directly from them. I didn't take any formal classes, um, but I really just wanted to figure out how I could make money on the side. And, you know, it's quite interesting. I, being an athlete and being in a rigorous coursework, um, I found ways to, to make money and kind of uh, support a very fun life in, in, in undergrad and learned a lot. And so I would say that's really how I launched into technology. Right. What was your first website that you ever built? Um, I believe, it, honestly, my first website was just my own personal website. Um, I built it through a program on Adobe uh, so Dreamweaver was, you know, a really popular software program that comes with, you know, the Adobe suite like Photoshop and InDesign and Illustrator. 
Um, and people used to use it a lot, you know, 10 years ago to kind of test mock their websites and themes. And so I built my first website. It was just a Rihanna Lynn uh, website. Uh, and then after that, I think I built um, a website for a limo, a limo and kind of luxury car service. Who knows today I should have turned it into an Uber, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, and uh, after that, I just built more e-commerce sites. And I think my biggest website in undergrad was building um, sort of a YouTube news website called World One. It's, it's down now, but um, I helped broadcast journalism friends uh, build a, a small YouTube like news service. Um, and it was fun because we were able to get press passes to some awesome events. That's when I really became interested in President Obama as we were able to cover and film some of his speeches around uh, North Carolina and DC. So uh, the the project opened a lot of doors and, it, and I learned a lot very early on. And so it's it's been quite interesting to see how websites and uh, website services and um, website building uh, companies have grown since then. Right. I'm still in intrigued in how you got started. And on your first website, on Rihanna uh, Lynn, what, what was it saying about you then? <laughs> you know, I just, it was more of like what I wanted to become. I, I thought I wanted to do, you know, like consulting didn't know what kind of consulting, maybe digital services, um, and then health consulting because I was a, I was an athlete. I cared a lot about how people, um, what people put into their bodies, um, and and I was doing a little bit of research on chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity. So uh, it was it was a it was a joint. It was a it was a combination of health and wellness. Uh, consulting and and just general background in, information. You know, being an being an athlete, um, I was able to get to top thirty in the nation as a uh, discus and javelin thrower. Uh, so I just wanted to highlight that. Uh, nothing special. I didn't really promote it to a lot of people, but it was just exploration and you know what what it looked like to throw myself into the digital space. Right. And you went at Google. How did that come to be? And what were you doing there? And uh, are you still involved with Google? Uh, that uh, was many years later. So that was only about two and a half years ago. Um, uh, I had, you know, a few. Uh, I worked at the White House before then. And I launched a couple of businesses before, I, before uh, this initiative um, and so I'm still involved with Google through their, um, partner code 2040, um, code 2040 is focused on, um, uh, and also the Google for entrepreneurs network is a, a network of hubs around the world, um, and innovation centers for startups and entrepreneurs, um, with support from the Google, from the Google network. And so the goal is to spur innovation investment um, and also make sure that you know bringing in some of the talent and some of the resources from Google will help create larger uh, innovation and inspire more to get into uh, technology and entrepreneurship in communities that um, are outside of Silicon Valley that need more access and knowledge transfer uh, and code 2040 is um, uh, focus on increasing the pipeline of blacks and Latinos in technology and engineering. Um, specifically, the name 2040, the, the 2040 part of it is that in the United States, um, the minority will be the majority, where that a Asians, um, Native Americans, blacks and Latinos will be the majority, um, you know, just in, the, you know, under 25 years. And but at the same time, technology, engineering, entrepreneurship provides a lot more opportunities, access to capital, access to um, wealth, to 
to to many things, solves lots of problems in communities, and uh, there's a disproportionate amount of Black and Latinos that are um, hired into the technology pipeline, especially at many top companies. You know, Apple, Facebook, Google um, have a, a disproportionate amount of uh, hires in these areas, and so the goal is to not only make um, stronger entrepreneurship communities for everyone outside of Silicon Valley, um, but to also make sure that um, the companies look like the communities that they're serving and, and that are using their products. Right. Um, so on since you've worked in that um, aspect of Google, what, what do you think is the issue that has, well, you don't get so many Latinos and blacks in technology. I think that's kind of a, it's the sense, it's similar in Cape Town as well. We don't have the balance in that, in, uh, uh, to the level that some companies um, recruiting people so-called inclusive specialists yeah. or something like that so, so that they can uh, try to balance the involvement, but I don't know what what's making the dynamic of the imbalance at first. Yeah, you know, so even in my story, like I said, um, going to campus, um, you know, you're told to go, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a researcher, um, maybe go into business, um, become a social worker, or you know, public health practitioner that's kind of where you, or, or maybe you can go into marketing, right? And that's where you see your limitations. Oftentimes, um, the opportunities, the jobs, the, the, the pipeline is not um, discussed with young minorities because, you know, either your parents don't know anything about the jobs, you know, the industry, um, you know, ne- sometimes it's really the simple saying, network is your net worth, right? And so... Um, I did not know as much about computer science as, um, you know, a lot of my white peers. And, and I think that is a problem. So recruitment, um, you also, even for me being in STEM, even though I wasn't in engineering or technology, I was in science to begin with in terms of, uh, like formal education. Um, it's a very lonely in STEM. Um, you know, so and when I'm in advanced uh, science classes, uh, microbiology and organic chemistry, uh, there are 50 to 100 students in here um, working to get into top programs, med schools, research programs, um, bio and biomedical engineering in those fields. Um, all of my professors in those classes are you know, typically white males, sometimes white females. Um, so you have a lack of mentorship. Um, most of your classmates do not look like you, so it's harder to create relationships for study groups, for example. You don't have older family members that went through that same route, so it's, they can't really help you go through that pathway and understand how to be most successful in that. So there's lots of issues that start from, you know, even being inspired to go into these fields before college and then staying in them um, as you go through college and, and go into um, your career. Right. So how did you now transition from that to starting your own company? And what, what exactly does it do? Yeah. Yeah, I... So my pathway from uh, research and, and, and science uh, into entrepreneurship, um, what I, I would say that uh, I didn't really, I haven't still stepped away from that background. Everything that I do today um, oftentimes um, is focused on health and wellness and sustainability. Uh, and so um, I had some mentors. Uh, I, when I came back uh, from undergrad to start graduate school at University of Chicago um, and uh, researching in Chicago, um, this was the department that was run by the First Lady, um, both uh, President 
Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama worked at University of Chicago. They had done a, a, a pretty good job of uh, keeping black um, professors and researchers at the university. And so some of my mentors uh, happened to be uh, a black woman and a black male, and a black man that um, have done very well in genetic research. Um, and my mentor, Rick Kittle, was uh, not only well-known researcher throughout the country had been featured on national press, but he was also an entrepreneur. So he's, he co-founded AfricanAncestry.com, uh, very similar to big, large um, data and genetics companies you see, Ancestry.com, 23andMe. Um, and I was able to see uh, someone that not only combined his passion for medicine, but was able to balance being an entrepreneur uh, running sort of a technology and science company and, and having success in that. And so my goal was to essentially do the same thing and continue research, continue working to solve um, major problems, uh, focused around food and health uh, in our communities, um, but also to start a company that um, could have direct and immediate impact. And so my first company, I was focused on e-commerce and selling cold-pressed juice, bottled juices, um, to residents around Chicago and, um, and got as far as, you know, a few other countries. And so I was finally able to use the skills that I learned, um, building websites, creating e-commerce sites, and had a lot of success in that. was able to give back to the community help educate people around uh, beverage choices, consumption, and how that can lead to poor health. Um, and from that, uh, Food Trace started because of the growth that we had in that company and trying to solve issues around uh, supply chain waste uh, and supply chain data. And so I decided to um, enlist some friends that were uh, data scientists and marketers uh, and and helped me build out kind of an early database that I was I had been putting together and turn it into an app, um, and that's really how Food Trace launched a little over three um, as a project for another company that I had started to solve some pain points uh, that we were having uh, during growth. Right. So just for the sake of some listeners, I just. Explain what supply chain is. Sure. Yeah. So essentially, um, anyone that runs a company that's producing a product, um, there is a supply chain of cold and um, I would say cold and dry materials, especially uh, if you focus on food, right? So you have everything from uh, the farm. So growing, planting, growing, harvesting, all the way through transportation, through storage, uh, through wholesaling, and, and, and through uh, retail. And so there's a lot of steps in between. But essentially, supply chain is the exact um, group of, of command and um, transport of one product from the beginning stages all the way to the consumer. Right. Now your company uh, operates around that area. What was the problem, first of all, that you guys attempted to solve and what did you solve and what do you continue to do? Yeah, so um, as we know today, <clears throat> as we know today, uh, data is, is really king when it comes to business efficiency, to um, and to also um, empowering customers, uh, empowering owners, uh, and also saving. And so my goal was to help better visualize the supply chain um, for within agribusiness. So from agriculture through all the way through food and retail, that is the agribusiness supply chain. Um, not only better visualize it, 
but give business owners, uh, food growers, and food buyers the tools that they needed to make better business decisions, but also to have a transparent supply chain so that they could share that information with their customers. Uh, today, more than ever, transparency and trust is very important to purchasing decisions and also to keeping the safety um, of a supply chain, making sure that uh, the sellers of these food products know exactly where their products are coming from, uh, preventing any issues that can lead to um, you know, safety concerns with food in the United States. We have lots of uh, recalls of food. Um, not only that, we have uh, lots of issues around um, the, the trust of uh, where, how our food is harvested and managed, right? So um, GMOs, you have um, chemicals that cause cancers. You have food waste. Uh, we have over $140 billion of food waste in the U.S. every year. Um, more than 35% of every seed that goes into the ground that grows into a, a plant or vegetable um, or, or is, you know, grown as a meat byproduct um, ends up in the garbage. Enough food to solve world hunger. Um, which is mind-blowing, right? And so there's so many issues that exist, not only in the 2.4 trillion in the United States, but agriculture as the biggest industry in the world. And so continuing to give business owners and give uh, the food and agriculture industry uh, data and tools to better manage their daily operations is something that we uh, went out to solve and specifically focus on um, the transparency, the traceability, and the data within the supply chain. Right. So, say a company that makes juice, what kind of data do you provide them with, and or you sort of how do you help them? Yeah. So, Foodtrace was built as a uh, software as a service, an enterprise software company. There are um, several different um, parts of um, a business that a, a company could choose to tap into um, in terms of what we can offer them. And so you have, um, you have uh, kind of the supply chain before it ends up at that um, business's uh, domain, right? So a juice company could choose to fully track everything from what is coming from what is grown all the way to what ends up at look, their, um, their, their retail shop. So if we take a juice bar, um, they could use us to actually map out um, a, you know, a carrot, the blueberry, and you know, the kale or the strawberries from all the companies that are doing the inputs into their actual product. Or they could use our um, software to help them better manage all of the locations that their juice is actually going to, right? So they can go to a store or they can go to a yoga shop or they can go to a school. And so that data is mapped out for them. And they can choose to either share that data with their customers, share it with their employees. Um, and there's different levels um, of detail of that data that they pay for on a monthly basis. Right. So you also told, told the last time we were talking, you told me about um, the level of obesity that the United States has and other diseases are linked to kind of an unclean supply chain or a bad supply of food or something like that. Could you explain more yeah. on that? Yeah, so one of the major issues when it comes to supply chain, supply chain transparency is, um, well, there's, there's two major issues in that is a, that's around um, the safety of food, which can cause kind of an acute health problem, right? So you might have coli or salmonella or listeria, right? And so that can cause someone to get 
stomach aches, it can hospitalize them. Um, they can, you know, get a stomach virus, right? And so those are kind of acute health issues that are large safety issues that can take out tens to hundreds of people just from a single batch of food or, you know, eating a certain vegetable or packaged um, or a packaged product. And then there's kind of chronic disease that has been found connected to food. So the chronic diseases are, you know, cancers, obesity, diabetes, uh, and then larger social problems like low energy um, and all other functions that are um, really affected over time by eating uh, certain types of foods for weeks and months and years. And so, and so these have major, major impacts on, um, on, on communities, on the economy. Um, in the U.S., we spend over $400 billion a year just trying to solve um, preventative, preventative uh, chronic disease issues, right? And so these are obesity and, and diabetes and cancers that oftentimes are caused by um, just a few things, right? And that, you know, science has found that it's honestly just food or uh, and food usually more than like lack of physical activity. And so there's a lot of things that we can solve. And also, I didn't even touch on the fact that, uh, you know, especially when it comes to meat farming affects our environment. Our, you know, our air and our water. And so um, these waste a lot of tax dollars, um, but they also just generally affect our communities in so many different ways. Right. So say a company that imports their raw material from Africa, how does your platform actually get the, the data from that to actually know what's going on? Right, so uh, we worked on building a lot of different uh, data inputs uh, and trying to solve the issue for business. It's hard for a business owner to input data and kind of keep up with those things, right? And so our goal was to go and data, data mine uh, from larger companies, from wholesale uh, databases, from uh, different APIs uh, and uh open source data, data APIs um, and databases, as well as private databases so that the information can be uh, readily available to the business owner to add to their platform, right? So uh, trying to get as much data on the farms that already exist today around the U.S. and around the world, uh, manufacturers uh, and um, packers of products. And so... It's, it was really an exercise in data mining and also adding data as it comes through. Right. And besides running uh, your company now, you're also involved, obviously, with uh, girls coding and STEM, the balance in the technology right now. Personally, I, I feel that I, I'm, I might definitely be wrong. Be wrong. Inside the technology industry, I mean, I don't really get to see a lot of uh, sexism as much when it comes to work itself. I think but once you go outside of that bubble, the tech bubble, I think uh, one can start to notice a lot of levels of sexism or discrimination or stuff like that. But I think one, once you're inside... It doesn't seem like it is. You know, I'm. Uh, no, I would. Wrong, I would say like there's. I would say that. Uh, fairly wrong. I don't know if you guys pay attention to. Um, some of the news of the, some of our top technology companies here in the U.S., but um, lots of lots of discrimination um, that takes place not only in hiring, um, but also. Um, in the workplace, in terms of treatment, in terms of pay, um, you know, being women being paid uh, 30% lower for every dollar that a man gets paid, women 
not being in leadership positions, um, workplace harassment. This is happening in some of our top companies that are making billions of dollars a year. Uber is probably one of the most recent examples where um, their CEO has been giving an absence of leave. He can't not be the CEO for a few months because of the workplace culture. Um, and so we're fighting hard every day to show that women um, and girls can build amazing tech companies. They can be employees um, and leaders within some of the most innovative and most fruitful companies in the world. Um, but we still have a far ways to go. Right. And like, what are the some of the more, most obvious but um, things that probably men won't know in direct ways of discrimination that's common in your experience? Yeah. I would say, um, you know, passive language. I mean, for instance, there is something called mansplaining. Have you heard about this? We know what mansplaining is. Mansplaining is when a man will condescendingly explain something to a woman that she already knows. Um, you know, honestly, if you work at a company, knowing that women are 50% of this world, women hold up half of the sky, uh, and you see that in your office of engineers or your office of doctors or your office of, you know, whatever field or, or group that you work under, if there are 10 men in that office and two women, you should be speaking up. Um, there is a problem there. It's not only that women don't want to work in these jobs. Women want every type of job there is available and more. Um, men should be proponents of making sure and understanding that uh, diversity wins. Um, and not just because it is a hot topic, but honestly because it leads to better returns, it leads to better um, knowledge transfer, it leads to better um, ideation, it leads to better problem solving, it leads to a wider range of viewpoints that um, are have led to success most and, and most um, prime successful companies show that. Right, that's actually true. And one of the things now that comes to mind when I'm reading or when I'm following a Reddit post or something like that is that a lot of people come to say that you know they have done some research uh women aren't necessarily interested in these kind of industries is is that true or is just uh people bubbling around it no I, I would say it's not true i would say there's two reasons why women are not found in industries one is either they weren't told about it because there's mostly men in it and the men are just telling their buddies and getting those buddies hired. Or two, they don't feel comfortable in that space. Um, and so there's not just organic growth, uh, maybe in that company or in that job or in that position. Uh, women could do everything men can do in terms of work and jobs. Uh, so, and there are women and girls that, like I said, are interested in every type of role that exists today in this world. And we need to make sure that we're more inclusive, that we're finding different ways to hire women, to recruit women, to train them and, and let them know that it's possible for them to do that type of work, um, that they can also be paid the same amount or should be paid the same amount, um, and that they have a support system and can find mentors. Now, that's not solved overnight, but if we start to have men that pioneer and speak up and understand the benefit of inclusivity and diversity, then, you know, year over year, we'll start to see these numbers change. Right. So I've uh, read uh, a few things on this subject, and um, it, it tends to, to look like at a certain level, uh, at a certain from a certain age, right? Interest between men and women seem to differ. That's why you you tend to have more men in the STEM side of things and women on the other side more. Even though there's obviously uh, cross patterns, 
but I, I listened to Chris Sacker, who is the, uh, a, a VC there in the United States. Um, he said that that problem is actually rooting from the young age when when the, when we grow up, whereas we conditioned to say like you know, as a girl, these are the things that you must be accustomed to. As a guy on the other side, uh, in your experience, do you find that true, or what do you think? Yeah, you know what I mean. I, I believe that we need to have more uh, cross cross um, kind of not only cross cultural but cross gender discussions, collaborations, discussions, and understanding of different viewpoints. Um, I think um, girls quite often um, are found to have different ways of expressing themselves. Of um, and, and you know th we do have differences. Um, males and females, women and men, we have differences in the ways that, you know, just biologically or, or um, just we look at how young girls have been raised and how culturally they're taught to um, act differently in certain situations and even minorities as well. Um, and so communication and actions and um, and observations can often differ um, in, in the way that the perceived um, reactions that are happening. And so um, we just need to continue to be open, have honest conversations, and kind of understand everybody's points of view so that um, there are no more misconceptions in, in how uh, women and girls or boys and men perceive these problems. Absolutely. And now uh, for the time you have been working on this how has been the change or the impact or what kind of strategies have been um applied to so, to solve the problem yeah you know um i'm the co-founder of women tech founders um and we have been focused on doing a lot of what you see in you know ted talks and, and others of the like uh and that's with storytelling so at the end of the day i I often say this, but I believe because it changed my life so much, um, you know, as a teenager, that exposure is the world's greatest professor. And um, by exposure, you're, I mean, the, the ways to improve exposure, to tell stories and to have leaders and to have mentors and to have open conversation. And so, um, I've seen just in a couple of years, uh, even in, in the community, through um, video storytelling and through live storytelling through events, that um, once you're able to get that experience out there, tell people how they can do it, how you did it, your pitfalls, your your triumphs, um, it it unlocks the world. Really, you inspire someone that was fearful that. Um, had no knowledge, had uh, no idea that they can step in that path to do more than they ever thought uh, that they can take on. And so um, we have to continue to share these stories. Um, we have to continue to get them on the mediums that are available today. Um, and, you know, that's through video, that's through social media, that's through live events, um, and continue to expose generation of leaders to the industry, the endless spectrum of um, minorities and women um, having success in STEM and in business. Right. So is there any books or websites or podcasts that you can recommend for people interested in these subjects or get involved with uh, those kinds of initiatives? Yes, I mean, so many books and podcasts um, and, uh, you know, Facebook groups, uh, Instagram, Twitter profiles. Um, I would say uh, there are some great podcasts that are available on Google Play and Apple um, around um, women in business. Um, so many now, because of the way technology has changed, gives people people the opportunity to tell stories 
Um, there's a great organization called Black Tech Woman um, on Facebook and Instagram. There are wonderful podcasts that um, I'm always following. Uh, and it's just generally, I tend to read a lot of books on, on business and business efficiency and starting up business from idea to scaling. Uh, there's a book called Sprint that I would highly recommend. Um, there are podcasts. Um, there's a new podcast that launched um, called Pitch Makeover by a good friend, founder of Pipeline Angels, um, Natalia Oberti Nagira. Um, but I would say, just like I did it, I went and just searched for the information. Uh, Google is at our fingertips, it's on our phones, all this information is available to us so readily now. I've been using the app called Anchor, uh, available on um, Apple and Android. Uh, tells you, has so many different channels available to anywhere from the newest apps out of Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley News, all the way through business of some of the most unique industries. So um, you just got to get out there and search. The information is there, whether it's medium or podcasts or books. Um, so much easier to distribute and um, share as an individual contributor nowadays. And so um, luckily we have folks like you that are making podcasts that hit on these issues. And um, now they're available for free. Um, just a, just in a, a couple taps in our phone. So I'm happy to share more of that information um, in a in a blog or follow up or you know other things that you may write in um, that are attached to the release of this to the release of this um, podcast. And um, hopefully I can inspire some through that and you know welcome any any other follow up. Great. And um, what? Since you said you read a lot of books, like what book would you say that changed your life completely or at least the way you, you look at things and you would always recommend it to anyone? Yeah, I would say um, it was a 19, I believe, 1981 book by uh, two books. Not, they're not newer books, 1981 book, and I believe 1906 book, but um, The Mismeasure of Man by Stephen Jay Gould um, was a prolific book for me. Um, being a scientist, but also being someone that um, is into genetics and into uh, globalization, uh, this book really touched on the history of um, how we have formed our view of race, um, our view of um, pseudoscience and eugenics, um, how it's led to major, major policies and social views of um, race and cultures around the world over the past 200 to 300 years. Uh, obviously, Souls of Black Folks by W.E.B. Du Bois, um, and, you know, I believe I'm, I'm a scientist, so I love just the, the science behind culture and the history of that. And so, um, those two books are very detailed introspection into how groups of folks shape the way the world thinks today. Great. And lastly, you have lived in the Valley. You lived in Silicon Valley for some time, right? I've, um kind of lived between um, D.C. because I was working at the White House, Chicago, where my roots are based, and uh, San Francisco right. over the past, um, since, since undergrad. Right. What do you think is the difference in culture uh, between like Chicago or D.C.? Uh, what do you think is the difference that makes it work, like, you know, to be more innovative and just to exponentially grow its products or ideas? <laughs> Uh, Silicon Valley or in general? Yeah, in Silicon Valley. I, I mean, Silicon Valley, because of, you know, things that happened between Steve Jobs and, and other innovators over the past 40 years, has a lot of concentrated wealth. 
Um, and they've seen small ideas turn into billion dollar, life changing, community changing endeavors um, in very short periods of time. So there's less risk aversion because of that. Um, people take bets earlier. They have more money and they believe in the millennial. They believe in, they believe in bigger, right? They have 10x thinking. They think that, um, outside of what you may find in Chicago and DC, that, you know, our government is supposed to solve issues. Um, I think that one or two people can solve something major and impact the world. And so that's probably the, the thinking is a little bit more based around that. Um, you know, a tremendous impact by the smallest person, the smallest idea. Um, and, and so that's something that we need around the world. We need more communities to believe in our youth and our, our millennials. I'm still a millennial. I'm a, always be a millennial. Um, and so uh, we just need, we need to continue that. Um, we can, I, I like to think that we can break things fast and, and try to repair them together and make them better. Um, and it doesn't take 500 representatives or 100 senators or an interesting president to fix these issues. We can fix it outside of those, those kind of traditional models. I like that thinking. And uh, so there's always a question of for somebody who is, say, in Ghana or uh, in... Uh, in Eastern Europe, they have an idea that they want to uh, go for. Do they have to go to, si to Silicon Valley to make it work? We have iPads and computers and mobile phones. Um, we can build this technology. We can access each other through social media um, within a few seconds. And so uh, the great thing is that I've seen communities in different countries that are embracing funding young ideas, different ideas, you know, agriculture ideas and energy ideas and green and sustainable ideas and social ideas, um, websites and e-commerce. Um, there are people in every country that are looking to fund these ideas, but know that uh, the skills and the talent and the passion exist in the community, your friends and family around you, and that's where it first starts. Right. Again, thanks so much for your time, Rihanna. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for the opportunity and, and great luck with the rest of your podcast.